Have you ever looked into the process for refining gold? There's several different ways to do it. No matter which way you choose, it is a highly complicated and very lengthy process. And it doesn't matter if you're just taking scrap gold from old jewelry, if you're taking gold ore straight from the earth, no matter what, it is very difficult and it is a painstaking process. You can only trust professionals really to do the job right. You know, it's interesting. We think about suffering and pain in the Bible. The first person that most of us think of is Job. And Job made this incredible statement. He said, when I have been tested, I will come through the fires refined like gold. Job, he, he likely had some kind of understanding that this refining process, this, this process of being refined, of being purified, of being perfected, what happens to gold was happening to him. See, perhaps Job understood that God uses the refining fires of affliction and pain in our lives to produce this character of gold. That's what happened to Job. It's also what happened to Joseph. We'll see it this morning in Genesis chapter 41. And just to give you a reminder, you remember all the fires that Joseph had been through, all those refining fires, being sold away into slavery by his brothers, being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, being forgotten and left in that awful prison after the cupbearer just forgot to tell Pharaoh all about him. Well, after you go through all of that, you are either consumed by the fires or you're refined. We'll see what happens to Joseph in this next scene. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 41 in verses 1 through 16. It says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk, and behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind." And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my dreams today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. 
Two years have passed since the cupbearer had his dream. Two years have passed since the cupbearer was released. Two years have passed since the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph, leaving him for two more long years in that dark, dank, smelly prison. And now, Pharaoh has had a dream. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, he understands that this dream is a dream of significance and he has to understand its meaning. And so he calls all the magicians of Egypt. These were the wisest of the wise in Egypt. If anyone could understand his dreams, it would certainly be these guys. These would be the guys that Moses would later do battle with in the book of Exodus. These were the men who were well-trained, well-versed in the Egyptian writings. They were even trained in how to understand dreams and understand hard sayings. So if anyone could interpret Pharaoh's dreams, certainly it would be these guys. And we read Pharaoh's dreams and we think, you know what, these dreams don't really sound all that complicated. I mean, even if we don't know the story, we could probably hazard a guess as what the dreams might mean. I mean, you got seven cows, seven ears of grain, they're good and then they're bad. Okay, so good things are going to happen for a period of seven years, seven months, seven days, something like this. And then Bad things are going to happen for a period of time. See, you and I, we could hazard a guess. We could come up with some type of a theory as to what Pharaoh's dreams might have meant. But it seems as if God just blinds the minds of these magicians. They're unable to even hazard a guess as to what Pharaoh's dreams might mean. And so Pharaoh is left panicked, looking for someone who can help him, someone who can interpret his dreams And so then, after two long years, the cupbearer, he finally has an opportune time to remember, to remember his old friend Joseph, that young Hebrew who interpreted his dreams two years ago. And so the cupbearer finally tells Pharaoh about Joseph. And Pharaoh can't get Joseph fast enough. The Bible says that, that, Pharaoh is, or that Pharaoh quickly summons Joseph out of the pit. I mean, you get the idea that the captain of the guard, he's running and he's getting Joseph. And Joseph is having to run to Pharaoh. He can't get in front of the palace fast enough. And he's running and then he shaves and he changes clothes so that he can be presentable before Pharaoh. And you just imagine being Joseph in that situation. I mean, this is your great grand opportunity. You've spent two more long years after however many years before that in this awful prison for something you didn't do. You've been falsely accused. Your name's been slandered and this is your day in court. This is your grand opportunity to vindicate yourself. You have a chance to be free. Oh, if it were me, I think I would tell Pharaoh something like, okay, Pharaoh, I tell you what, I will tell you what your dreams mean if you will just set me free. I might be trying to make, cut a deal for myself, trying to get out of there. Joseph, did, did you catch Joseph's first words? He says, hey, Pharaoh, it's not in me. It's not in me. I, I'm not the one you need. I mean, it's not me who you need. When we read that, I kind of want to jump into the courtroom and argue on Joseph's behalf and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, my my friend Joseph is just being humble here. Of course it's in him. I mean, Joseph, after all, don't you realize God is in you? Of course it's in you. Take a little credit here. This is your opportunity, Joseph. Joseph, he doesn't do that. He says, it's not in me. 
It's God who you need. God will give you the answer. I mean, what an incredible response after all Joseph has been through. And you can imagine all the wise magicians who had filtered through that courtroom, all of them hoping that they could be the one to provide an interpretation to the dream so that their status, their place in the kingdom can be elevated. And now here comes Joseph, a Hebrew criminal in this idolatrous, polytheistic culture, a culture with myriads and myriads of idols and gods. And Joseph is saying in his grand opportunity, It's not me who you need. Who you really need is the one true God. Well, Joseph says that, and it seems as if Pharaoh just dismisses Joseph's statement altogether. He just ignores it, and Pharaoh just runs right into his dream. And he tells Joseph his dream because all Pharaoh is really concerned with is Joseph. Can you interpret my dream or not? I don't really care how you do it. I don't really care who gives you the interpretation. Just can you tell me what my dream means? And so Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. Let's re-enter the story after that in verses 25 through 36. It says, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what, is he, what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows then came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So Joseph provides the interpretation, and it is an interpretation that is truthful and right to the point. And you know, you could see that coming. I mean, Joseph, he's provided interpretations in the past, but what is truly remarkable, I mean, what is simply remarkable about this scene is what happens next when Joseph says, Pharaoh, what you really need is a wise and discerning man. I mean, Joseph doesn't just give Pharaoh the problem. He tells Pharaoh the solution. And it's one thing to be able to say, here, here's your problem. I mean, we have people in our lives like that all the time, don't we? Who can say, here's the problem. We need to fix this. We need to fix that. We need to fix this. I mean, it's one thing to be able to identify a problem. That's not the hard thing. But it takes someone wise and discerning who is able to say, here is the problem and here is the solution. And that's just what Joseph is able to do. 
But when you sit back and think about it, when Joseph says, Pharaoh, here's what you need to do, I mean, you have to wonder, where, where does Joseph get that? I mean, where does he come up with a plan like that and speak with such confidence to Pharaoh? I mean, bang, bang, bang. Joseph says, okay, Pharaoh, here's what you need. You need a central administration system. You need a security system. And you need some kind of distribution system. Here's your threefold plan, what you have to do if you want to survive these years of famine. Now, you understand, Joseph, he's just 30 years old now. And you consider all that he's been through, he hasn't been truly free since he was a teenager. And when he was a teenager, he was just this privileged teenager who didn't have to do any of the work. He was exempt from all that. He just got to look out over his brothers. And now, after however many years in, car in incarceration, he just stands before Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, here's your problem and here's your threefold solution. That's incredible. But you understand, that wasn't in Joseph. That was God giving Joseph the wisdom that he needed in the moment that he needed it. Let's pick up the story in verses 37 through 45. It writes, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphpanath paneah and gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh, he's a polytheistic idolater, but he recognized that Joseph, that his God, he is real. That There is something about Joseph's God and his relationship with God that is real. Joseph doesn't treat God as simply an idol. He has this relationship, a dynamic relationship with God that God is able to give Joseph wisdom and discernment. And so Pharaoh chooses Joseph. It's interesting, isn't it? Does the world see that in you? Does the world recognize just a dynamic relationship that you have with your God, that God is working to give you wisdom and discernment because you live your life in close proximity with him? Or does the world see your God as simply an idol that you choose to worship on Sundays that you pray to when you need some help or you want some type of blessing? See, that, that is the question, isn't it? Does the world recognize that our God is real because of the relationship that we share with him? Now, we see this promotion from the pit to the palace, this rags to riches story. And we love stories like that. We love seeing this in Joseph's life. We get all excited. 
But you have to imagine what the people in Egypt would have been thinking at that time. I mean, here's this young Hebrew criminal who was promoted essentially to the office of prime minister or president. I mean, he's elevated to this supreme status in all the land. And yet his platform sounded great to Pharaoh and to all the politicians. But just imagine what Joseph's platform would have sounded like to the regular people of Egypt. I mean, here's Joseph and he says, here's the plan. We're going to impose a 20% tax increase on all of you. One-fifth of your produce you'll have to give back to Egypt. I mean, how's that going to go over? A tax increase like that for the next seven years? I mean, you can imagine the people, they would have been grumbling, they would have complaining, maybe perhaps saying, Pharaoh, this guy is going to raise our taxes by this incredible amount for seven years? You're going to take a fifth? I mean, Pharaoh, why would you do this? And Pharaoh's rationale would be, well, you understand, I had a dream And this young Hebrew criminal, he was able to interpret my dream, so I'm just going to allow him to lead. Yeah, Joseph was promoted. He went from the pit to the palace. But you have to understand that the people in Egypt, at least at the beginning, they must have hated Joseph and his platform and his ideas and what he was standing for. You see, this was Pharaoh's idea. This was Pharaoh's plan. He says to his servants, let's find a man like this. But Pharaoh quickly understands that there will be no man like this in all of Egypt. The only man like this is Joseph. It must be Joseph. And so Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring from his hand. He's giving all of the authority of Egypt over to Joseph. No one will lift a hand or a foot unless Joseph gives the okay. The taxes will go through just as Joseph says. Joseph is now clothed in the finest garments, the finest linens in the land. Everywhere he goes, he will ride in this chariot and the slaves will run in front of the chariot and they will shout, shout, they will chant. Iske, Iske, bow down, bow down. Why? Because Joseph is coming. Yeah, this is quite the rags to riches story because moments before, I mean, Joseph was scraping food from a tin plate. His neck and his ankles were shackled to a post in the middle of a dark, smelly prison. This is quite a rags to riches story. You talk about a reversal in fortunes. I mean, this is a huge one. This is definitely a pit to the palace, rags to riches kind of story. And I imagine that if we were able to gather Joseph right here with us right now, and we were to ask Joseph, hey, Joseph, what was the biggest threat that you ever encountered in your life? You know, at first glance, we'd probably think, well, it must have been being sold away into slavery by your own family, being betrayed by your family like that. That must have been the toughest thing. Or perhaps, you know, being slandered, being falsely accused, having your name run through the mud after Potiphar's wife just comes up with these awful allegations against him. Or perhaps we would think, you know, when you finally have just this glimmer of hope, you're forgotten about, you're left in this awful prison for who knows how much longer. That must have been the toughest thing, the biggest thing threat that Joseph ever faced in his life. But you know, I imagine that if Joseph were here, he would tell us that the biggest threat he faced was the position that he held now, 
was being promoted into this place of such extreme prosperity. You understand, this is a threat that you and I know well. We, we live in the most prosperous culture on the planet in the existence of human history. We, we know what this give me more type of culture is all about. We're always after more. And in a culture like ours, if we work hard enough, oftentimes that more, well, it can be achievable. It's often within reach. And so we have more and we want more and there is always more to be had. You know, any other group of people, they really haven't had it quite as good as we have here in America at this time. And there is something about human nature that wants more, but really oftentimes cannot handle more. Yet we all want to be pampered just a little bit more, don't we? See, prosperity is this huge threat because prosperity tends to erode and eliminate faith. It seems that when we're in need, when we're going through those fires of adversity, that we remember God, that God becomes close because we cry out to him in our moments of fear, in our moments of adversity, in our, in our moments of despair, that there's something about the fires of adversity that brings us close to God, near to God, that just does not let us forget about God. You know, that was the reminder that God gave to the, to the Hebrews in the book of Deuteronomy as they were about to enter into the promised land, as they were on their way there. God tells the Hebrews at that time, do not forget the Lord your God and do not forget his ordinances. Why? Because in times of prosperity, that's what we do. We tend to forget. We, we, we tend to just look within. We become self-reliant. And when we want more and we're looking for more, well, we've already achieved so much. We already have so much. We think that we can bring about the more that we think we really want, we really need. You know, another reason why prosperity is such a big threat is because the elimination of faith, this erosion of faith, leads to a weakening of character. You know, it is the hard times in life that develops this moral toughness, this, this moral character. And when you don't need anything, when everything you want is kind of within grasp, there is this tendency to forget God. And faith erodes, it's eliminated, and then our character is weakened. Because it denies any kind of potential impact that we can have. It denies the relationship that we have because we are not focused on the relationship. We focus on ourselves. The, the refining fires of adversity produces Joseph, this man who can stand up to the threat of prosperity, to the threat of being the most powerful person in the world except for Pharaoh. And we know that. Because Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian name, Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian wife, and then Joseph has children. We read this in verse 51. Joseph names his first son Manasseh, and he says, I have named him Manasseh, for God made me forget about my hardship. And then Joseph has a second son, and he names him Ephraim, and he says, I named him Ephraim, for God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. See, despite all that Joseph has been through, and now despite all of this prosperity that he now has, he's not just trying to please Pharaoh and get popular in Egypt. 
he is still determined to raise his boys to love and serve the one true God. And you see this just in the names of his boys. He says, God did this, God did this, God did this. You see, God is always on the tip of Joseph's tongue, always on the forefront of his mind. Joseph respected the glory of God, the authority of God, and the centrality of God in his life. Nothing was going to move that. And so, Joseph's plan worked. This, this taxation plan that he put into place during the seven prosperous years was able to satisfy and sustain the Egyptians during the seven years of famine. See, something wonderful had happened in Joseph's life. It wasn't in Joseph. It was God. And after all of the refining fires, God had indeed created gold. And gold is a quality of character that is so pure and so rare that when the world sees it, the world takes notice. And so the question now comes to us. Is God creating that type of gold character in your life and in mine? Did you reflect the glory of God, the authority of God, the centrality of God in the way that you live and honor him? Do you give him praise during the good times and the bad? Because you know what? The world will notice, just like the world noticed Joseph. And Joseph was able to say to Pharaoh, hey, it's not in me. I'm not the one you need. So too, we will say to the world, it's not in me. I'm not the one you need. And then, like Joseph, we'll be able to share Jesus and impact people. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you use the fires of adversity to refine us, to develop a character as pure and as rare as gold. God, do that in our lives. Do not let us be consumed by the fire and turn into petty bitterness and revenge and, and self-pity. God, help us to love you and serve you. We ask this. By the power of your Holy Spirit, and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.